This is Corinne. And this is Ayani. And you're listening to Sex, Love, Literature, a pop culture podcast where we take a semi-scholarly look at why and how the sex stuff in media matters. We're tackling a big topic this time in a two-part discussion on the female gaze. What is the female gaze and why does it matter? In our first episode, we established some context for the term by getting into the history of the gaze as a concept, the psychoanalytic origins of the male gaze, and how the oppositional gaze, as coined by theorist and scholar Bell Hooks, makes space for alternative ways of looking and being looked at. If you enjoyed us really leaning into an academic vibe this time, let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and threads at sexlovelit. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any of your other favorite podcast platforms. And remember to tune in to part two of our discussion. As a note, this episode was recorded during the 2023 WGA and SAG-AFTRA strikes. Without the labor of the writers and actors currently on strike, along with their counterparts in other countries who also deserve fair wages and labor protections, none of the works we discuss here or in other episodes would exist. All right, let's dive in. Well, hello there, SLL listeners. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Sex Love Literature. We are so excited to have you all with us today. Uh, and this episode is actually kind of special because it marks the first episode that we have done together in which we are both doctors. Yay! That's Yay. <laughs> kind of exciting. Uh, so no, you don't have to start calling us Dr. Cooper and Dr. Matthews. I think that'd be <laughs> weird. Um, I still don't recognize when people are like Dr. Cooper. I'm like, who's that? I don't know. But I don't know. That feels kind of exciting. I feel like over the course of this podcast, we've gone through a lot, especially since it started mm-hmm. at the start of the Panini, you know? Um and yeah, so I, this kind of feels like a major milestone markery kind of thing to me. Yeah, well, <laughs> Aeoni has been Dr. Cooper for a year. I'm the one who Still is recently defended. But uh, for <laughs> a little bit of context for people not super familiar with academia, uh, the milestone that I have finally passed is that I defended my dissertation, which is a book length project on an academic topic. Uh, we'll may- we'll probably do another episode coming up where we sort of reintroduce ourselves and might talk yep. a little bit about our dissertations. But mm-hmm. all you need mm-hmm. to know for now is that we are finally done or both done with our PhDs. <laughs> yeah, which is which is wild, which is wild to me. Um, and by the time this episode comes out, you might have graduated and been hooded and stuff, which is yeah. exciting. Do you, do you want to give context for hooding? And then we can, <laughs> we can move I on. mean, I don't know how exciting it is. So it's like I when was you... very excited when it happened. Okay, well, Ayani <laughs> has always wanted to get a PhD specifically for the puffy hat. <laughs> I love uh, my hat. It's hanging I am, on my mirror. I am less motivated by clothing <laughs> items than she is. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so when you graduate with your PhD, you get hooded by your advisor. So it's like a hood. It's not like a hood that goes over your head, although maybe it might have been inspired by that. I don't know. Mm. But it, it like now. hangs. 
it hangs like around the front of your neck down your back and it's it's kind of like being knighted maybe i don't know yeah yeah yeah. i mean some people actually get swords in other countries when they defend yeah we we picked the wrong country to get our phds in (laughs) i mean i'm not gonna do it again but also the hats in other countries are pretty great (laughs) as well so you know yeah no once is enough once is enough as far as a phd is concerned so yeah this is kind of an exciting episode. Um, I'm excited for Corinne. It's it's fun to be Dr. Cooper and Dr. Matthews. And yeah, I just felt like I should shout that out at the start of this episode, especially since this episode in particular is going to, in a lot of ways, be pulling on our expertise as academics. Um, mm-hmm. I know we've done episodes like that before. I think Promising Young Woman leaned Mm -hmm. in a lot to your expertise as a consent scholar. I think Mm -hmm. the sex education episodes are like that a bit as well. Um, So this is another where we're definitely going to be trying to pull, pull on kind of those threads of our, I don't know, academic expertise. That's Although I will also say, so we'll have already introduced the topic and the like intro intro, but right. The the term that we're getting into, a uh, female gaze, is one that has crossed over a bit from mm, mm-hmm, the like mm-hmm. academic to the more like pop culture, yeah, general like like popular analysis kind of space. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So Absolutely. it's probably something you've you've certainly heard of the male gaze before, uh, and by gaze I mean G A Z E, not <laughs> the male G A Y S. <laughs> Just you know, in case. You are no, like it's... me and heard that for a while and we're like, why are we always talking about the male gaze? <laughs> it seems a little like targeted uh, <laughs> and an odd way to phrase it too. Yeah, but... it's like a weird way to put it, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but anyway, before we get into that. <laughs> oh, sorry, that was funny. I was coming down from that. I was going to segue, but the laugh was still in my throat. <laughs> Please continue. But before we get into that, we will do our regular segment uh, called What's Barking Joy, which is where we, I always say briefly, and I don't know that it always ends up being brief. No, I think brief is a lie. We have often lied about things being brief, and this is one of them. But Yeah, but we, we talk sometimes at length uh, about <laughs> a piece of pop culture that we are reading, watching, or listening to that is currently sparking joy for us. I do want to note that because we are recording this as the actors and writers strike is going on that we are trying to be careful about what things we plug and promote on the podcast Uh, Mm -hmm. so that affects what we're going to mention as what's sparking joy for us yeah I keep wanting to say striking like in striking joy striking joy that is a very active verb but maybe not what I'm going for but anyway so just we we included something about that at the beginning of the show but just Mm -hmm, as a reminder mm -hmm solidarity with actors and writers Mm -hmm. we very Mm -hmm. much support the Mm -hmm. strike but also still like pop culture and we're also more of an analysis podcast than a promotional one so that is something that we're thinking about yeah and we're kind of trying to navigate in the upcoming episodes um but anyhow i guess i'll go first since you did the what's sparking joy introduction and what is sparking joy for me right now is an anime that came out maybe a season or two ago um i think it wrapped up last season but it's the gun the most recent gundam series the witch for mercury 
And Spiles Andrew has been telling me that I would love this series. And he constantly is like, Ayani, you should be watching The Witch for Mercury. And I'm like, I don't know. I'm watching like 15 things and then the K-drama <laughs> and then a podcast that I have to do. So I don't know. But finally, uh, one day at dinner, I was like, you know what? Okay, we'll watch The Witch for Mercury. Uh, and I really like it. It's a lot of fun. For a super, super quick synopsis, it's about a young girl named Suleta and her Gundam. Um, I'm going to mispronounce it because I want to say Ariel, but it's like A-E-R-I-E-L, like Ariel. I cannot help you. <laughs> and she goes to – no, I'm, I'm not expecting your assistance with this one. <laughs> um, and she goes to kind of like Gundam battle school in which people are being trained to both be Gundam pilots, but also mechanics and work in marketing and all that kind of stuff. And she gets wrapped up in the ins and outs of Gundam school, which is directly tied to the ins and outs of like the big mega corporations that kind of run space right now. Um, so it is, as most Gundam series are, future science fiction. But <laughs> anytime I see mega corporations and like, the head of the mega corporation is the president of the mega corporation. I don't know. It, it There are definitely analogies to our current lived experiences. Mm. Um, but anyhow, uh, it's super delightful. The main character, <laughs> it's funny. She is really trying hard. She's a great pilot, but she has a lot of social anxiety. So whenever she pushes herself to like say, hey, that's not right, or to try to meet a new friend, she's always stuttering and very nervous about it. And it's like mood. <laughs> I relate, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, I actually said, I think after we watched the first episode, I turned to Andrew and I was like, I need to be more like Suleta, that when I'm nervous about something, I should go for it and just say it, even if the words don't come out all the way. So uh, I feel a kinship with this nervous Gundam pilot. Also, she's a redhead, but it seems like she's a natural redhead, unlike me, who's a redhead <laughs> for pretend. But anyhow, so The Witch for Mercury is bringing me a lot of joy. Uh, I think if you all are following us on Threads, which is a place you can follow us right now, we were also talking about the fact that we started watching Vincenzo, and uh, which is a K-drama, a gangster K-drama, which I'm not going to get into a lot right now. Um, but there was just a big reveal in Vincenzo, and Corinne is ahead of me, and so I can text her everything that I feel about it. So yeah. Those will be my my two. So Gundam, The Witch for Mercury, and Vincenzo are sparking joy for me. Yeah. Uh, Vincenzo, for those of you unfamiliar with K-dramas, started airing – or started and finished airing in, I think, 2020 or 2021. I think so 2021. It's, yeah. It, it's a completed K-drama that a lot of people really, really love that we're getting to kind of late. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I know I didn't pick it up because I thought the premise sounded a little silly. I mean, it is a little silly. <laughs> not wrong <laughs> but we were watching because Aani came down to Florida for my defense and we mm -hmm, were watching mm -hmm. it and Andrew her spouse asked us like is this a comedy and I was like no well Aani was like e yes <laughs> so <laughs> the genre is as with most K-dramas there's a lot of genre bending and mixing mm -hmm, happening mm -hmm, but it's very mm -hmm. fun we're late to the party but we're glad we're there <laughs> yes 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 Actually, randomly, really quickly, not to cut off your joy being sparked here, but something <laughs> – sorry, this was just on my mind because you were talking about the Florida trip. Apparently, our voices are hard to tell apart. <laughs> <laughs> and I did not know this until that Florida trip, which it was mentioned to us. How many people? I know one of your besties said that she can't tell us apart on the podcast. 
And then yeah, well, she said, was so she was watching Hit the Spot because she listened to our Hit the Spot episodes. And then I was like, yeah, too. I agree with Ayani about like this point that she made. And I was like, that was me. <laughs> <laughs> so sorry to our listeners that our voices are apparently the same. We should Except have thought for- about that before we started a podcast. <laughs> our laughs are different, though. That's how they know. <laughs> The term she used to differentiate them. She said that my laugh was witchier. (laughs) I think that's a compliment. You should take it that way. I mean, I'm choosing to take it as one, but also like that is a statement. (laughs) Oh, that's funny. Uh, All right. (laughs) What's sparking joy for you? (laughs) Uh, So what's sparking joy for me is something that I have perhaps mentioned on the podcast before (laughs) maybe maybe Uh, once or twice (laughs) or multiple i don't know it's fine uh but it is the c drama the story of ming lan uh which because i am visiting my parents for a couple weeks i have persuaded my mother to watch with me (laughs) so the story of ming lan is I think, well, it's certainly my favorite C-drama I've ever seen, and it is also, I think, one of my favorite, if not my favorite show that I've ever seen from any country. Huh. Interesting. Yeah, I'm I'm realizing that. I already kind of maybe thought that was the case, but upon re-watching it, this is my first rewatch because it is 73 episodes long. <laughs> so long one. Mm-hmm. Watching it is a commitment, so I've only watched it once. So this is my first rewatch, and it's just so smart and clever and Mm, there are mm -hmm. seeds that were planted very early on in the drama that like don't come back to sprout for like 40 or 50 episodes that I'm like seeing now and I'm like oh (laughs) I get it (laughs) Uh, and it was also great the first time I watched it but so the story of Ming Lan is set in about the year 1200 in one of the Mm. Chinese dynasties I think it's the Song dynasty I could be mistaken but it is about Ming Lan, who is the daughter of an unfavored concubine, uh, mm-hmm. who her mother dies fairly early in the drama. And it is about her sort of struggle to survive the awful, deceptively dangerous shenanigans, for lack of mm. a better word. But shenanigans mm-hmm. sounds too fun for what's happening in the inner <laughs> courtyard Uh of her family house. Uh, her father is a mid-level bureaucrat. I think what is one of the things that is very interesting about this drama is not it's not like a palace drama. Mm. So it's not like thinking about the emperor and the pol- politics certainly certainly come into it. But mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. Minglan is like in such a interesting position socially, uh mm. she's a very very interesting character to watch. And then her love interest is also very fun. His name is Gu Yi and he is the he has a reputation for being, I think the word they use a lot is hedonistic. Oh, boy. <laughs> uh, son, heir to a, word. Um, yeah, heir to a marquee. So he's at a much higher social class. But it is the slowest of slow burns. But it is so, so rewarding when they finally get married and like seeing them become a team as well as like a convincing romantic couple. Mm. Uh, so. Story of Ming Lan, I think it aired in 2019, so it's a little bit on the older side now, but it is super, super good. Highly recommend. Very well plotted. Very well paced. 
for something mm-hmm. that is so long. Mm-hmm. And the costumes are gorgeous. I was just watching oh, an episode where they, they have a polo match. <laughs> Uh, well, because they apparently polo was an, they call there's another name for it in Mandarin, but polo was apparently invented in China a thousand oh. years ago. <laughs> Did not but know that this. Is, that is super super fun to watch, especially since the women also play. Oh, also the description that I've heard of Minglan that I am going to share to sell it to some of our listeners is it's like. If you if you like Jane Austen, but you would like the social rules to be even more complicated and also for sometimes there to be murder, then this is the show for you. Yeah, yeah. I know most people do come to the Jane Austen text for the murder specifically. So, you know. <laughs> anyway, so that was a not that brief what's sparking joy. Oh no. We've we have definitely done longer with sparking joys. So True. don't don't beat yourself up. So shifting into our main conversation, Corinne and I wanted to take some time this episode to talk about the female gaze, right? What is the female gaze? Why does this term exist? Why is it used frequently in conversations about media? It feels like the kind of term, and Corinne, feel free to jump in here because I know in part um, the impetus for this episode was some of your thoughts about how it's being used culturally. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's the kind of term I feel like that has a lot of <laughs> a lot of background, but no clear definition. And that mm-hmm. to me makes it kind of interesting because it's tied to all of this kind of like deep academic context, but n- does not really have a clear definition in the way it's being used kind of pop culture generally. Yeah. So part of the reason that I kind of wanted to do this episode is what I've been hearing it used in contradictory ways that mm, I think are mm-hmm. that I think could use some complication. Mm, uh, mm-hmm. So like, for example, I've heard the female gaze to use things women like, <laughs> which I don't know, to me, is sort of lacks the specificity of the mm. of the use of the mm-hmm. term gaze. I also read another definition that suggested that the female gaze is how women see women, and f- it's for their personalities for some reason. Uh, That's weird. Okay. Yeah. So there. Are, so if you, even if you just like Google the female gaze, there are a ton of there are a ton of results, but there's not really yeah. a sort of clear consensus of what it means. So I thought right. it would be interesting for us to spend some time thinking about the history of the term, the mm-hmm. gaze, mm-hmm. and how the female gaze has sort of like popped up and what, <laughs> not to toot our own horns a little bit, but like what we think the female gaze means. Right. Or what we sh- what we should be thinking about when we think about the female gaze. Yeah. And I don't think we are going to come to like a definitive answer like this is the definition that you should use I mean no it's not that kind of a number one it's not that kind of a podcast but also I think conversationally it's more complex than one I would feel comfortable giving a very definitive definition to Mm -hmm. but I think your kind of use of complicate and complication is really important here because something I hope we get to is like complicating the use in our modern era of the female or the male gaze altogether right Mm -hmm. Um, but that's, we'll see how this conversation goes and if we actually get there. <laughs> Not to like throw a disclaimer in, but part of the reason that we're doing this is that in working on my dissertation, I did a keyword essay 
on the female gaze that I mm-hmm. kind of wrote and then forgot about. But then when we were going to do this episode, kind of brought it back up again. And there's, it's a really interesting conversation. And on top of that, I just kind of want to say, while I've written about it, I'm not, I don't know, this isn't my exact area of expertise, if that makes sense. You, you, it's you'll closer see. to your area of expertise than mine. <laughs> no, no, you're right. But you'll, you'll kind of see as we start peeling back the layers, like one of the things I think we're going to dive into in a little bit um, is that the gaze itself as a term has a lot of legs in psychoanalysis. And that is something mm-hmm. that because of the kind of research that I do, I have to do reading in, but it's not necessarily like where I live. <laughs> it's not, you know, it's not my jam, so to speak. Um, but I kind of have to know it it exists and who exists in those frames. So just something to keep in mind as we're moving through. So I guess we can just start, unless there was are there anything else up front that you want to say before we dive in? No, I think it- uh, I think that was a starting actually. <laughs> oh, womp, LOL. Yeah, we started. Ha 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 ha. So to kind of give an overview of how we see this conversation going, uh, we're going to sort of break the female gaze down into parts. So first, we're going to think about what the gaze is, where the mm-hmm. idea comes from, what that sort of encompasses, and then we'll think about uh, a little bit about the terms of the male gaze and the oppositional gaze mm-hmm. uh, before we get into the female gaze specifically, because the female gaze didn't just pop up by right. itself. It specifically came up in response to these Mm -hmm, other mm -hmm. terms so but before we get to specific kinds of gazes uh what is what is the gaze aoni what is that what what does that sort of encompass or invoke yeah so that's a really big question yes (laughs) that's a really big question and not to undercut myself, but there are a lot of smart people who have had smart conversations about okay. what the gaze is. Stop um, saying that you don't know anything, Aeon. Okay, you're right. You're right. I know things. I do know things. And I'm literally about to quote myself to prove how I know things. As previously um, established, we are both doctors No, you're now. right. You're right. I need to, I need to stop undercutting myself. Um, but one of the things that I did in my dissertation is kind of tried to figure out how to do a really quick gloss of the gaze to give kind of a sense of how it works. So the way that I thought about it in that project was kind of thinking of the gaze as a quote unquote background radiation of subjectivity or the camera behind our eyes that constructs the understanding of media. So to kind of break that down a little bit, I'm thinking more of like, this is going to sound, I'm going to try to make an analogy here, but kind of like living in a society, right? You get a lot of input and a lot of information from a variety of different sources. And Mm -hmm. thinking about the gaze is kind of like the way we gather all of that data that we're living with and living in and use that to process what we are looking at. So it's kind of like the camera behind the camera, if that makes sense. Yeah, so like – Sending that back to you, I guess. Yeah. Uh, So you're saying it's kind of like how we are trained to read and process images that we see, right? Right. Exactly. And it's it's kind of like that script that's just running constantly. So the example that I used in my project, because I was talking a bit about how we understand pornography, right? Also, is, for context, Ayani is a comics and animation scholar. So she oh, looked at right. specifically a lot of comics in her dissertation. Yes, yes. A lot of, I think visual media is an important way yeah. to kind of 
put it, things that are used in pictures. And I was thinking a lot about like erotics and pornography and using the gaze to kind of be like, it's difficult. It's really difficult to give a succinct, easy to understand definition of pornography because it's really complicated. Um, Mm -hmm. And as we see with kind of what's happening with book bannings right now, right? Mm -hmm. It's easy to stretch pornography into a variety of different ways um, or a variety of different meanings. But we get kind of background radiation information about what erotics are and what it means to be erotic. So if you're presented with an image, right, how you perceive that image as erotic or not erotic or pornographic is based on all of the information you've been gathering societally. Mm -hmm. And then that's filtered through your individual perspective. So that's kind of an example that I would use for thinking about how the gaze works, the eyes behind your eyes, the camera Mm -hmm. behind the camera. Yeah. I'd also maybe – and correct me if you disagree, Mm. but I think we can also sort of break the gaze down. The three things that the gaze sort of takes into account are who is being looked at, who is looking, and like what lens they are looking through. Is that too simple? No, it's not that it's too simple. And I'm going to kind of drop this and then maybe we can move on from it because it's it's a lot of layers. But when we think about the gaze, it's not so much thinking about the individual perspective. Mm-hmm. It's more thinking about, I don't know, I'm moving my arms and you all can't see me doing that on a podcast. But I feel like there's, there's, more, there's more of a conversation of kind of mm, – large swaths or large groups of people but i, I think yeah, ultimately it's, it's you're more right about the assumed viewer rather than like right i and corinne matthews who was looking yes. at gu tingyi on ming lan that's not <laughs> the gaze it's more who is the assumed viewer of this c drama right 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 so yes yes <laughs> <laughs> all right so rather than staying broad we're gonna zoom into something a little bit more specific uh because The gaze is huge, so to start, uh, we're going to think about the male gaze, which I believe is kind of where we started, we being scholars, started thinking about the gaze at all. Mm, That's not quite accurate. Okay. (laughs) Never mind. However, no, no, no. However, I will say I think the male gaze is the place where the gaze really took off in a Mm. pop culture sense, so I feel like... It's not the only place, obviously, right? Uh, and we're we're not talking with like libraries in front of us where we can source everything. But the male gaze as a concept is one that like pop psychology really latched onto. Yeah, it's and one ran of those. With. Like, it's one of those rare terms that crossed over from academic criticism and scholarship to general to like the general public. Yeah, and it's it's not actually it's not one hundred percent unheard of in part because I think the male gaze. And I'll rewind this and give some context, but a lot of that conversation in the article that is kind of like the the trope codifier for the male gaze, let's say, pulls on Freud. And Freud is someone who, from a pop psychology standpoint, is huge. People still are using Freud in pop psychology to describe certain things, you know, like the id, the ego, the superego, the Oedipal complex, all that kind of stuff. Okay, so so for context, yes, the article, let's rewind. <laughs> the article, Ayani, I think is 
so the problem here is that Ayani <laughs> knows a lot. She knows way more about this much. than I do. So she's getting a little bit lost in the weeds. So I will, as the resident dumb person here who hey, doesn't hey, know as much. Hold on. <laughs> if I'm not allowed to talk down to myself, you're not allowed to do it either, okay? We're both okay. doctors now. <laughs> as, as the non-expert in this subject. <laughs> so this idea of the male gaze comes, I think, largely from – um, Laura Mulvey's article, Visual Pleasure and Narrative mm-hmm. Cinema. Mm-hmm. And it has since become a much more expansive term, but she originally was using it to mean something very, very specific in the yes. context of a few specific films and using psychoanalysis, uh, Freudian yes. psychoanalysis specifically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are not going to get super into the psychoanalysis stuff nope. because that's not our bag. And also, I don't like Freud. So, <laughs> as a personal preference, you don't want to talk about phalluses, Corinne? No. I do not wish to do that no thank you uh, but when Laura Mulvey is talking about the male gaze she so a quote that Ayani has pulled here onto onto our outline that we have uh, is it so she says that in a world ordered by sexual imbalance pleasure and looking has been split between active slash male and passive slash female the mm-hmm. determining male gaze projects its fantasy onto the female figure which is styled accordingly mm-hmm. so she's writing specifically and suggest and claiming I think that narrative cinema and cinema and mainstream cinema specifically she's sort of Mm -hmm. putting aside independent cinema when she's writing this Mm -hmm. uh, is meant for a male viewer to look at female characters i suppose as passive subjects right and she's both thinking about the way that they are depicted on screen Mm -hmm. and she also thinks a little bit about narrative here right right Mm -hmm. and Kind of adding on to that, one of the claims that she makes is that the whole or the main purpose of the woman on screen is to provide an erotic spectacle. So even in a non-erotic moment, right, just Mm -hmm. the woman being there, the purpose of that is for her to be looked at and kind of fantasized about. There's a term that she uses, to be looked at-ness, that I think is kind of a fun phrase because it's really Mm -hmm. focusing on the fact that the whole purpose to Mulvey in this article of the woman being there is to be looked at for the pleasure of looking at her. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And she even calls up like pinups and striptease and things like that in this context. But as you were saying, the main focus of her argument is narrative cinema. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So some sort of key concepts here that I would maybe flag here is that like mm-hmm. to be looked atness that she defines pretty much all women in cinema is like a trait that they're a, not a trait maybe a characterization or a character mm. identifier that they have or a purpose I guess purpose I think yeah let's go with purpose mm-hmm. uh, and another is she also talks about pleasure in looking mm-hmm uh, mm-hmm there's a specific term for that, right? Yeah, it's a scopophilic pleasure, I believe. Yeah, so scopophilia. Scopophilia, uh, yeah. And she basically says that uh, there is both like the male, uh, assumed male viewer of the film, uh, mm-hmm. but sort of complicated by like the 
editing traditions and filmmaking mm-hmm. traditions in which mm-hmm. they are trying to draw your attention away from the constructedness of film mm-hmm. and it's supposed to mm-hmm. feel natural mm-hmm. so it is mm-hmm. supposed to feel natural that men are the ones looking and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. this is a little bit where narrative comes into it and this is i think where a lot of people tend to move away from Mulvey a little bit but she assumes that like the main male character is the one that viewers project themselves onto and right. identify with mm-hmm. and there, when mm-hmm. that male character looks at the female characters so like an example of a film she uses is vertigo uh hitchcock's mm. vertigo she specifically thinks about like the narrative ways in which the viewer is meant to associate and identify with the main male character right. rather than the female one mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah and i think that's perhaps one of the things that gets lost in when we move the male gaze away from Mulvey into kind of like a more pop culture context is it's not just that a man made this film so it's the male gaze, right? It's about Mm -hmm. how all of these structures are in place that assume a male viewer and a Mm -hmm. male viewership and then interpolate viewers into that position. Mm -hmm. Um, even female viewers, even right. viewers who are not this assumed male audience. Right, 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 right. Um, so it's – I'm trying to word this carefully, but it's not just like, oh, man, the camera has panned over a hot woman and thusly that is the male gaze. There's there's a lot of different layers to that mm-hmm. conversation that can kind of complicate how we're looking at a sequence like that. I do still think it's inherent – it is inherent in the male gaze to have like the objectification of women, especially when they are positioned as passive, both in like how right. they are seen and how they are characterized in the narrative. So mm-hmm. like objectification is part of it, but it's not the whole thing. It is also dependent on these other larger structures. Yeah. And I guess something that, I don't know, that I try to complicate in thinking about the male gaze is how we think about objectification, right? Mm -hmm. Because usually in these contexts, it's like, ah, someone's objectified, that's bad. And I think it's because objectification is linked with passivity and is also linked with how then that character is treated because they are objectified, right? And I'm trying not to jump ahead because as you said, sometimes I get a little, I'm getting kind of like in the weeds here. But I, I think I don't know. I think that's something that kind of needs to be interrogated, right? Especially as we think about the female gaze, right? Or as we think about what does it mean to not assume that the viewer is male as we're moving into more modern context, as we're moving into more modern films. Or, and I will say, you know, Movi doesn't really think about race in yeah, her so essay. Thinking here then, which Aonia started doing about some of the limitations of Mulvey, yeah. are some of the assumptions that she is making about, or, or perhaps some of the unstated assumptions like mm-hmm. specifically about race. A lot of like her assumed, she never talks about race, but her assumed yeah. viewer here is not just male, uh, which is largely what she focuses on. Right. Uh, he is also white and straight. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So uh, when we add intersectionality, I suppose, into the conversation, Mm -hmm. there are other factors here beyond mm, straight man looks at – or white straight man looks at white straight woman. (laughs) Right. And I will say even when she broadens the conversation to women specifically in her follow-up essay, it still feels like white straight women that she's Mm -hmm. talking about um, who are then kind of – I think part of her argument is they take on masculinity – 
right? Which I don't necessarily agree with, but yeah. So yeah. what moving then into our next sort of term that we're thinking about, which is in some ways a response to Mulvey, but also complicating the gaze mm-hmm. as something more generally is uh, bell hooks. Bell hooks's term, the oppositional gaze, right? And this comes from was it a book chapter or an article? I think this was a book chapter. I, the version I have is a book chapter, let's say. <laughs> uh, a book called The Oppositional Gaze, Black Female Spectators. Mm-hmm. So what made you want to talk about the oppositional gaze in your keyword essay, Ayani? What were you mm. What were you trying to add by looking at it? That's a good question. Also, can I just say you're the MVP for like keeping this episode on rails? Because if it were up to me, I'd be like, <laughs> and then that's why. So, you know, good, good for you. Good on you. Yeah, no. So part of the reason that I wanted to make sure I mentioned the oppositional gaze is in part because <laughs> the thrust of my conversation was broadening out the conversation um, mm-hmm. and really thinking about all of the different ways that people have interpreted and thought about what I call sexualized gazes. So I think thinking about how to use another kind of academic term, how people write back to establish scholarship is really important, especially when you're mm-hmm. talking about sex and the body. And Hooks is a really important thinker and an important scholar. And I definitely recommend reading her work because I I like to read it. It's a pleasure to read rather than like a slog to read, if that makes sense. Um, mm-hmm. So that's that's kind of where I was coming from. Like a lot of people think about Mulvey only when they think about the male gaze. So I wanted to make sure I was having a conversation around and beyond that in thinking of my own understanding of the female gaze. So yeah, you had pulled some great quotes for Hooks that as I was reading, I was kind of like (laughs) responding to, like I haven't read the article before. I haven't read the piece before. But is there one- She has read the piece before. She's the one who said it to me. (laughs) Yes, it's, (laughs) it's my scan of the piece. But is there one that you'd like to highlight for the purpose or – well, actually, rewind, rewind. When we say the oppositional gaze, it kind of feels like what that is is right on the tin, but how would we describe that kind of in the same way we've been thinking about the male gaze? So the way that I'm understanding it from Bell Hooks is the oppositional gaze is – so I'm going to give two sort of definitions here. Yeah, go for it. Uh, One is when you look – the, per- the object or the-, the person who is an object of the gaze and is not mm-hmm. supposed to look back does. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So like the example that I struck me as a childhood studies scholar uh, that Hook starts with is that children are not supposed to look at adults mm-hmm. necessarily. And then she connects it to slavery and how enslaved people were not allowed to like look back mm-hmm. at the master. But mm-hmm. then she says, well – I knew as a child that I certainly snuck looks at adults when I shouldn't. So I'm sure that enslaved people did as mm-hmm, well. Mm-hmm. So she she talks about that as like – so she says like that all attempts to repress our slash black people's right to gaze had produced in us an overwhelming longing to look, a rebellious mm-hmm. desire, and oppositional gaze. Mm-hmm, so it's a gaze mm-hmm. that is in opposition. So she's thinking there about gazing and looking not necessarily just in the context of film but more mm-hmm, generally mm-hmm. as who is – who has the right to perceive right. almost? Who has the right to look? Yeah, I think who has the right to perceive is a great way to put it. And kind of returning to my conversation of what the gaze is, is kind of this like background conversation that we all have running in our brains. 
Hooks has kind of a quote here from a little later in the article that mass media was a system of knowledge and power reproducing and maintaining white supremacy. So something to think about is like when we're filtering all of this information and that codes how we read and watch and listen to and understand things, the the negative parts of our societies are in there as well. Um, actually, I mean, this is not one-to-one, but kind of thinking about all the conversations about AI right now and AI mm-hmm. training might be an interesting kind of like relation to the gaze because it's the same kind of filtering of what we put into it, right? Who's mm-hmm. who's feeding the data in and then what does that end up producing out in a sense? Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I'm going to build on that a little bit. And yeah, go ahead. The, the quote that you – like specifically that's where Hooks is transitioning into thinking about film and mass media mm-hmm, and who's mm-hmm. whose perspective is being centered and this is where she's adding some complexity into like mm-hmm, the idea mm-hmm, of the gaze mm-hmm. by saying like it's not just men it's not just the patriarchy right mm-hmm, <laughs> it mm-hmm. is specifically uh white supremacy that is being perpetuated by and, and not always in like obvious ways like this isn't just like characters i don't know using slurs that's not what she right. means right 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 it's, no, like, it's much bigger than that it's this larger systemic like assumption of who is looking, mm-hmm. who is being looked at, mm-hmm. whose stories are being told. Like one of the things Hooks goes on to say is that like black women are largely absent from a lot of the mainstream cinema that she's talking about here. Mm-hmm. Not mm-hmm. just not just as like people looking, but also as the object of desire, which is very right. often a particular kind of white woman. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. And I'm sorry, my brain is just connecting dots, not to pull away too much from hooks, but something this makes me think about in doing my keyword essay, I was thinking about who is allowed to be desired, right? Mm -hmm. And who do we place focus on when it comes to desire and desiring? And I was reading this book about heartthrobs in romance. And it really struck me that there was only one chapter that really thought about non-white romance leads. And I think in total, I think I said there was like four pages <laughs> that was related to um, black presses for black readers in a, in a you know, 150, 200 page book, right? Mm-hmm. And that the majority of the conversation in this chapter was about white women who were then in Asian context and swept away by some kind of sultan. So there was this kind of so that gets a little bit into other. Orientalism a little bit. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So just thinking a bit about what you just said. Sorry, I'll bring no, it back. No, I mean, I, I think <laughs> I think that's interesting because it also adds complexity. Because I when when we think about Moldy and the male gaze, I think there is a temptation that I often <laughs> fall prey to to be like male gaze <laughs> equals bad, right? <laughs> Being gazed mm-hmm. at bad i do not wish to be perceived uh, but i think there is also it, it is important to add that complication of who is even deemed worthy of being gazed at right it's mm-hmm. not just that we need mm-hmm. to get rid of the gaze, gaze. it is worth mm-hmm. thinking about both ends of it in that sort of power dynamic but also yes. in whom who absolutely. is deemed desirable and worth looking mm-hmm. at in the first place mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. absolutely absolutely and then how they are then treated right or mm-hmm. or ranked in the media that we create yeah and and there is like a, this question of like if being desirable and being gazed at is 
can it be empowering or is it just objectifying? Mm -hmm. And so you're also using objectifying negatively, right? I am. Which, (laughs) which, which I think is interesting because like, (sighs) I'm trying to think of an example here. You know what? I'm going to use an example that I texted you about. Oh God, what did I say? It was something really silly, but like, I look at hot people all the time. <laughs> you know what I mean? And granted, <laughs> granted, this is taking the gaze and making it individual, right? Because I I am only in control of my own body. If I see a hot person running down the street, I might be like, wow, that's a really hot person. But I think there's a difference between taking a look on the street and then going and saying uh, feeling like I can act on my objectification in a way that makes somebody else comfortable. Right. But is what I'm doing not objectifying them? In a sense. Well, it's kind of like is the – because the word that I'm thinking here is maybe like admiring (laughs) or like checking someone out versus like – But what's the difference? What if that – if you're seeing that person as an object or as someone with like their own agency? Okay, Ah, so agency. Coming back to the active and passive here. Mm. Well, make, I mean, make like, it a an object doesn't have agency. agency. That's no, the that's problem. very true. That's very true. So, so is this a question of not to get too heady about it? But is it the question of that we we use how we talk about desiring and how we talk about active desiring kind of comes down to the terms that we decide to use, right? Because I think you're right. If you say admiring or checking out, then that has a, a softer connotation than objectification, right? Because you're turn you're mm-hmm. not turning into an object, but I don't know. Part of me feels like on the ground, a lot of it is the same. But it, I, words are important, so I'm not saying like we shouldn't we shouldn't choose the words we use carefully, right? But I think hmm, maybe you're right. Maybe the connotation of like the flattening of objectification, the turning of into an object that you can then do with what you want, is what makes it negative. Well, and thinking about that, like it also has some something to do, I think, with the assumption of having the right to look. Mm. Mm-hmm. In a way that, mm-hmm. like, I don't always. <laughs> this is maybe a little bit silly, and certainly detached from cinema. No, but like the general social culture. So I lived in Poland for a year. Like they really don't check people out in like the same sort of obvious way that we do in the United States. And I'm not saying mm. that like they don't find people attractive, because uh, I certain I'm certain I'm sure they do. <laughs> but like, I got used to not being looked at in a way that made me feel sexualized while I lived in Poland and when I came back to the states and there were people and men who like mm-hmm. just looked at me and assumed that they had the right to look it was unsettling mm-hmm. to me in a way that it wasn't before I like got used to something mm-hmm. else this is I'm sorry this is not the trend of the conversation I'll bring it back after this but I'm just thinking about the intensity of a stare versus mm-hmm. a look right cuz there I think the time someone spends looking cuz there's leering is different than looking is different than mm-hmm. i don't know i don't know well, I, it's almost like i i mean i use the term admiring but that is almost more like it has a more respectful connotation to yeah, it almost no, abs- than like yeah. feeling like i'm being objectified being versus watched. feeling like someone thinks i'm pretty i don't know like- yeah <laughs> yeah this is in part why the podcast is an article is not an article, but is a vibe. Because I, I feel like we're thinking through these th- – these things are complicated and complex, right? And this is something I think about all the time, especially as someone who studies, like, erotic material, right? Is that you're reading about people – like, I, you know, w- when we look at naked bodies, 
yeah, sometimes it's to be like, wow, this is amazing art. And sometimes it's to be like, yeah, that turns me on. You know, that's hot. (laughs) That turns me on. And I don't think we should – we shouldn't demonize that. And that's just something kind of I think about when we think about the male gaze is like part of the problem is is that it's not equitable, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And – the kinds of media that we get, it's it's not a flat, even plane that we're getting representation of all different kinds, right? But I don't know. My gut is just like the male gaze isn't isn't inherently a negative thing, but the fact that it is so constantly deployed and the assumptions that it makes makes it negative. Which is why someone like or the the work that Hooks did in this essay is super important. Yeah. So sort of maybe recapping that a little bit like the problem with the the problem with the male gaze is when it's the only gaze that's allowed and assumed Mm -hmm. and the only Mm -hmm. gaze that we are trained to deploy by the media that we are consuming that trains us how not just how to consume media but how to look at and interact with the world yeah 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 and the fact that it inscribes this active passive dynamic Mm -hmm as part of that training and then it makes a group of people essentially inactive and takes their agency away. Yeah, it's like who it puts in the position of power in this binary and that is straight white men. And then the object then in the lesser position in the binary is straight white women, which then leaves a whole bunch of people out of the equation altogether. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So (laughs) – As we often do, we're going to be breaking this into two parts. Um, That wasn't the original plan, but I don't know. We kind of we kind of thought it would be a thing that happened as previously established. When we say we will be brief, we are lying. Oh, boom. Bring it all the way back. (laughs) (laughs) So we're going to stop the conversation here. Pause rather than stop. Oh, pause. Yes. Language, again, is very important. We're going to pause the conversation here and then restart, I think, leaning maybe directly into the female gaze, kind of based on this groundwork that we've set. All right. Next episode, we will hit the ground running with the female gaze. So since we're wrapping up, Corinne, where can people find us on the internet? Uh, you can find us at Sex Love Lit on Instagram, Twitter, and Threads now. We'll see how long that lasts as an app that people use. Dramatic shrug. I have no idea. <laughs> uh, but of those, are the best place to interact with us is probably Instagram. Sounds good. All right. Bye. For now. Pew, pew. <laughs>